The problem of climate change in agriculture is, of course, huge. And I think it's really a symptom of a paradigm that has been around for a long time, but has really driven us to a point of depletion. Um, so the concept of extracting from the soil, the concept of extracting from the land for this endless growth, I think is really a symptom of a mindset that is coming to meet its conclusion. But prior to that in this land, there was an idea of regeneration and an idea of reciprocation. And that idea never died. Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. This is Chuck from Moses. Today is the last episode of our series on climate change. This is the audio from one of the keynotes from the 2021 Growing Stronger Collaborative Conference. And our executive director, Lori Stern, moderates a discussion on farming and climate with Aaron Schneider from Hilltop Community Farm, Leah Zizi from Intertribal Agriculture Council, and Jim Goodman from National Family Farm Coalition. Let's get to it. Food sovereignty is tied to the land. Those of us that provide food for ourselves and our communities through farming see this connection daily. Millions of people around the globe have become climate refugees, leaving homes and farms because they could no longer grow food, access potable water, or support themselves. But we do not have to travel the globe to have felt the effects of the changing weather. We have seen wildfires, torrential rains, and hurricanes so many that we are into the Greek alphabet as a naming convention. As farmers, we are deep in relationship with the soil, seasons, and the interrelationship between plants, animals, and our own stewardship of living systems to nourish people. Today, we are opening our Growing Stronger Collaborative Conference with a panel entitled Farming in the Time of Climate Change, Making the Shift to People and Planet First. Our panelists will share their unique perspectives on farming and climate, exploring ways of addressing one of the greatest challenges we face as a species. This session will highlight the connections and contributions we can make across farming systems, communities, and as individuals in relationship to other species and the limited resources of our earth. I'm Lori Stern. I'll be acting as our moderator this morning. I am the executive director at MOSES. I have spent the better part of my career working on social justice in the fields of education, public health, and agriculture through policy, program development, and leadership. And today I'm kind of framing this panel in the spirit of collaboration math, which is a process that um, we've used in public health, where we look at different perspectives that people bring to an issue and where they overlap and we and where we can leverage our individual strengths and our collective strengths and, our, and the strengths of the organizations that we work with. So a little bit about our panelists this morning. Aaron Schneider co-owns and stewards Hilltop Community Farm, a diversified CSA and market farm in Laval, Wisconsin, specializing in organic fruit and wedding flowers. For the past 20 years, she has worked toward growing perennial collaborations with the Humisphere and fellow humans. Aaron also supports farmers with finding land access success through the Farmland Access Navigator Program with Renewing the Countryside. After 40 years on the farm, Jim is a repurposed Wisconsin organic dairy farmer now turned advocate and agitator. Jim is president of the National Family Farm Coalition Board of Directors and serves on the boards of the Midwest Environmental Advocates and Far Family Farm Defenders. Jim credits more years of failed farm and social policy than he cares to think about as his motivation to advocate for a farmer controlled consumer oriented food system. So Leah is a citizen 
of the Oneida Nation. In 2010, she co-founded a cooperative of Oneida families growing traditional corn, beans, and squash for subsistence and trade. What began as a mission to grow food eventually became a mission to grow farmers and address climate change through grassroots collective farming. Leah offers technical assistance to tribal farms through her position at United South and Eastern Tribes. So welcome and good morning to all of our panelists. So this morning, I have a series of questions for you. I will ask each of you the same question and you can answer in turn. I have immense respect for each of you and the work that you do within agriculture and you each offer a different perspective, yet what ties you together is your thoughtfulness on the relationship between farming and the environment. So to start us off, Erin, how do you define the problem or challenge of farming and climate? When I think about this, I just feel like it's one part existential angst as, you know, internally and, you know, just navigating that inner climate uh, as farmers meets our ability to just sort of sit with the uncertainty of it all. And I feel like we, as again, as a farmer, like you're trying to mitigate risk, right? But you just never know. So, and then the other part of that just means, you know, to me is like inviting in nature's like great stabilizing genius in the form of cranials. So I feel like the problem is one just of a humanitarian shift. And given that we are needing to behave in agriculture really as understanding ourselves as a collective body of what lived before us, you know, all of it, like the soil and the grit and the gratitude and the shit, right? And working at how we restore that intimacy of our relationship to, to the soil. You know, I'm speaking from someone who's, you know, a land-based farmer, and, you know, I think in some ways it's easy to like sit with this problem because we usually are always having one hand in the soil and how do we not want to like grow in relationship with that, you know, in some cases it's a reflection of the earth skin, the soil is and a reflection of ourselves, right? So to me, I feel like the, the problem is just realignment with, you know, our love of land and place and and some level how we fall in love, can fall in love again with the soil and then in turn our souls. So no problem, <laughs> but yeah, that's, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, the problem of climate change in agriculture is of course huge. And I think it's really a symptom of a paradigm that has been around for a long time, but has really driven us to a point of depletion. Um, so the concept of extracting from the soil, the concept of extracting from the land for this endless growth, I think, is really a symptom of a mindset that is coming to meet its conclusion. But prior to that in this land, there was an idea of regeneration and an idea of reciprocation. And that idea never died. Um, it's still here. It's still living with the indigenous people. It's still living with a lot of non-indigenous people as well. Um, and so I see it really as a mindset of how we relate to the earth and how we relate to the other beings that we share this space with. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been part of a uh, panel or part of the Moses Conference, and it's good to be back. I am real glad to see uh, young people stepping up to the plate, though, because I think that's what we what we really need if we want to change society in general and change agriculture along with it. I guess I became an organic farmer because I saw so many problems with conventional agriculture, and they kind of went hand in hand with problems of society in general. And I guess I kind of like to look at things in the big picture view now that I don't have to look at the small picture of my own farm anymore. 
But I guess in general, I, I would say that, that the big problem with not just what we see happening in agriculture, but in, in, in climate change and the economy of the world in general is people want to make money. And I think the fact that fossil fuel companies have uh, always made profits and want to continue to make those profits until every last drop of oil or every last particle of coal is extracted and burned, and then they will move on to renewable energy. And they're already making that move, which is good. But the problem that we need to realize is that unless we have the will to really make some tough choices, things aren't going to change nearly as fast as they need to. I farmed for 40 years, and you could see this gradual change in the climate. And, you know, words matter. And I think people need to realize that there's a big difference between climate and weather. And those that would say, well, the climate's not changing. We always have cold winters. Sometimes we have warm winters. That's true, but that's weather. That's not climate. And those of us that live here in the, you know, halfway between the Arctic and the equator see the least impact of climate change. And when you think about the impacts we do see, like the winds in Iowa last year and the fires and flooding, we can only imagine how those people that live near the equator or those that live in the Arctic who are being impacted at a much faster rate than we are, we can only imagine the suffering that they're going to go through. So I think the problem, as I stated earlier, is, is money. And unless we can get to the point where we realize that Everyone needs to make a decent living, and we have to do something to stop this terrible economic divide and make sure that we put people ahead of profits. I really don't see things changing that much. Um, you know, it's, it's simple economics, and the, uh, the way that, that much of the northern world has run has been as an economic empire, whether that was from the initial pushing of indigenous people off their land or the institution of slavery. We did what we did to make more money for those who were at the top of the heap. And that goes right along with climate change, because as I said, the, the, the big corporations that benefit from practices that destroy the environment are going to keep doing that uh, as long as they can make money. And it, it, it's getting to the point where we can't wait any longer. We can't allow that to continue to happen. So rather than our government investing in more fossil fuel exploration, I think we need to start investing in getting people uh, their own renewable energy sources, their own storage batteries, because that's the only way it's going to work. I mean, people need energy, but it needs to be done uh, with renewable energy, and we can't continue to keep digging fossil fuels out of the ground. So to kind of piggyback on that, Jim, uh, what in your personal story led you to address climate and agriculture using that definition? Well, as I said, uh, we switched our farm from conventional farming, which my brother and I had been doing for about 20 years together, to organic. I guess it was for two reasons. One, uh, we were tired of, of trying to get bigger and bigger all the time because that's what you know, we were told by many secretaries of agriculture we had to do, get bigger, get out. So the economics was part of it, but we could really see the damage that conventional farming was doing, the pesticides, the herbicides, the you know, intensive cropping. So I guess our, our, our switch to organic agriculture 
um, was for those two reasons, because we wanted to remain a small farm. And we also wanted to take better care of, of the soil and, and of our animals and ourselves. So it only made sense that, and I, and I think this is still exactly the case. You know, I said before that words matter. And, and uh, many years ago, when the, the SARE program started, it was sustainable agriculture. And everybody thought, great, sustainable. We all know what that means. But now we see big corporations calling themselves sustainable. And so regenerative agriculture became a term. And, and that's, it's, it's better than sustainable. It's certainly better than conventional. But I think we need to look at agroecology and food sovereignty because those titles take into account not just nutritious crops and taking care of the land, but also making sure that, that people's cultures are, are taken into account, that they're allowed to grow the, the, the kind of foods they want. It takes into account having healthy food for everyone. And it also takes into account that farmers uh, can make a decent profit and don't have to feel they need to get, keep getting bigger and bigger all the time to make a living. By ensuring farmers a fair wage, we also have to take into account that everyone needs a fair wage to be able to afford good food. So again, the big picture, um, we have to look at changing things by striving for a more just economy. And Leah, I guess same question to you. And what in your history led you to define it as, as this way, the problem? Well, I have a meandering way of coming into agriculture. I started out working on a farm in Oneida called Junhenkwa, which is our organic farm that we have at the Oneida Nation. And then I went away to school to study mechanical engineering, thinking I was going to design all these really cool green technologies. And then I wound up back in agriculture. And I think that agriculture has this immense power to change the way that we do our relations with the earth, right? It really is hands in the soil kind of work, uh, much more so than green technology, which has still has a special place in my heart. But I think that I was led back to this path because it aligns more with my identity as an indigenous person and applying um, new technologies in a culturally relevant way and seeing that a lot of the new technologies and the new buzzwords are old ideas and old concepts that are sort of re- you know, mishmashed, remixed into this new um, way of doing agriculture. And so, you know, I think back and laugh at some of the elders when these words, these buzzwords were coming out organic and this and that, and they were, what is that? And, oh, it's what we've always been doing. It's the same thing we always knew how to do. Um, and so to kind of build off of what Jim was saying, I think you're right. There's a, We have to have the will to move beyond um, oil-based economic system we have to have the will to want to feed everyone and want to make sure everyone is housed and want to make sure everyone is uh, living a fulfilled life and can really bring their gifts to everything that they do. And so it goes beyond just having the technology available, right? You have to want to take that next step. And I always think back to some sustainable business courses that I took in college. And one of the quotes that really stuck out to me was the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Right. And so we have this ability to decide to make different choices, even if it seems like those are the only tools in our toolbox. And Aaron, what, what about your personal story that, that got you to this place of definition and addressing yeah. climate and farming? 
Yeah, it's, well, it's really layered. And Leah, your, your talk of green technology makes me think of like, we're, you know, we haven't yet run out of trees, right? So for trees especially. So of course in my life, uh, things, uh, trees have been just very, again, stabilizing forces. But I think I wanted to share a couple of threads that really helped me think about how, as you mentioned, come back into like really right relationship with yourself and to see human, you know, our role as humans as being part of a whole, not the distinguishable feature on this earth, including how we grow food. So the first is kind of a family story. I think, you know, my, my recent ancestors, anyhow, they're, they're all like farmers and musicians and builders and painters and, you know, working class rural Wisconsinites. And on the paternal side of things, they're all veterans of wars. And they enlisted to share in some respects out of love of the land and country. And, you know, I think also as an opportunity to stay above poverty. But I think in that I've witnessed that wear in my bones and that toxicity of effects of like, you know, endless war and extraction and power over people and each other. And in that, I think, you know, we ask of the, ask, ask people to go off, go off and, you know, some, anyhow, so I think in part that had led to my dad, um, you know, taking his own life shortly after Vietnam, um, well, and then, you know, my stepdad also wears his own war wounds um, from Vietnam, and, and then earlier, my grandparents who were dairy farmers, you know, you also can't help but think of, like, all of those chemicals and, you know, war, you know, machine, if you will, from World War II and the Korean War, we got repurposed and into agriculture, and, I can't help but think of like, whoa, how come cancer is showing up in my body or my, my body, thank goodness, sorry, my, my, family, my family's lineage, you know? So I just think like, so for me, the, you know, farming with, you know, just primarily with, you know, perennial fruit trees and flowers and farming organically is, is a way to come into right relationship and with where I'm at and to kind of reconcile and try to heal those like really big shifts that you know derail have derailed humans and you know I, I don't know it's just a layered history I think the second thread is a little more recent anyway and I'll just mention the floods of 2018 which really impacted our farm in Laval and like northwest Sauk County and I think this really faith maybe just really look at like oh you know climate change is <laughs> you know it's you can't just move you know we can't just leave and move and go to a place where there's you know more water stabilizing forces etc um it doesn't happen elsewhere in a localized area. It's everywhere and I can't escape from it. So um, it's, you know, I think it's as farmers, I mean, we probably, you know, we're the art of staying put, right? With land-based agriculture and trees especially. But I think like what we've seen is all three wettest years on record since 2016. And then another, you know, and the next three wettest years on record since, you know, NOAA website was keeping track in the 1940s happened seven years before that. So you were, we're looking at like a one in two chance of having the wettest year on record happening. And if you're just getting started or in any, you know, in vegetables or just kind of any type of farming and you're staring that down, it's, it's really sobering. So to the extent we can keep the soil in place and our cells in place, et cetera, um, you know, so that, those were, those were real wake up calls. Um, and I'll just, <laughs> I'll end on, uh, and this, question too. It's just so much of a life story, right? We, um, and, and as farmers, we're continuing that story of what came before us. But what help, what's helping me come to terms and, you know, just how to presence myself in this like overwhelming big issues of climate change is, you know, the role of art and beauty in that too. On our farm, we really just um, feel really fortunate um, 
that I can be growing things that I'll last my lifetime in the form of trees and perennials, yes. But then also like, you know, as Jim mentioned, farming's tough economically, you know, it's hard to make a living in their current structure and system. And I think we have to remind ourselves like to play and invite in what it is that we love about what we do. And then just, you know, through that, um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Just, <laughs> just like, I, I think I've said enough to this topic. I think we, I think we each wear our, the whole, everything's personal and, and our response to how do we think about climate change because we're living, breathing and growing it. So that's a great question. <laughs> So the, the next question actually is for you again, Erin, and I, I think you started to touch on it a little bit. Um, so it's more about like what resources are available to address the problem as you see it. And you, and you started there, you started down that path of, of art and kind of those things that keep us grounded. So I don't know, maybe a little bit more about that. So the, how, what resources are available and how are you using those resources and in terms of the problem as you define it? Yeah. Um, well, I can wrap up that thought on our, <laughs> well, so there's so many, and I, I do feel like, you know, as farmers, we're in just, you know, looking at, and, you know, with wonder at the world around us, right? And not just wondering about our bank account, but wondering about just life around us, right? So first and foremost, I think shifting how we design our farms in some ways, you know, not just with thinking of your own time and energy and like what you have available, but, but also looking at nature's guiding genius in the form of like for, um, I'll use the example of food forests um, and trying to like model and mimic forest structure and function. And we can translate that into like, you know, food crops. So that has very much been um, something we geek out on and like the practice of forest gardening is an orchard tool for design. And it really is all about, it's just been a game shift, shifter for me and how do I observe and think about the land, you know, like, oh, well, oftentimes the plants that end up showing up are the ones I needed and I didn't even know it that, but I think it just takes that kind of attention and willingness to be like, well, what if we, you know, just, um, so that, that, that comes to mind. Um, and I, I know Jim also was sharing and, uh, you know, just other people in uh, Leah was mentioning too, like, you know, the knowledge of others and the wisdom of others, as well as like um, how we use and think about energy. But I really wanted to say what's really, I think will help us with climate change is our imagination. <laughs> that's been a big tool um, in particular. So just, I think we can ask ourselves, imagine a world of farming where we aren't extracting um, our labor or the soil, but regenerating it. Imagine how much money it would cost to repair our, and restore our current atmosphere's carbon levels for the next five centuries. Now think about that. How do we take that and imagine if we were taxing carbon emissions to cover this cost, what would that market look like? Or would it make us think differently? Would we think that we need to produce our food that, as, if our carbon, as if that carbon tax were upon us now? And I just think, um, imagine once we open ourselves to what if, and when we feel that little existential angst of doubt, turn to wonder and each other. That's really helped me. Um, Sounds Pollyanna-ish, but hope is a real interesting life-giving force. I really like that answer, and I completely agree with you. I think that there's a lot of power that we have in just being connected to each other um, that isn't always um, something that's talked about in uh, agriculture or in technology is just the power of people coming together to solve an issue. Um, or to help each other out or to even just have relationships um, that can be very supportive. And I think that that's what one of the big takeaways for us with our cooperative 
is how powerful it is to have a group of people who are set on doing something out of the love of doing it. Um, and so we started out with this goal of being more food sovereign, right? Like Jim was talking about and feeding ourselves with traditional foods. And then we ended up with this goal of growing other farmers in the community and bringing them into that um, space of knowledge. Um, and now we're growing into how do we be as regenerative as possible? Um, and we're starting to experiment with how we're planting and we're starting to like really read into um, the like very few uh, written accounts of what uh, Haudenosaunee agriculture was like at the time of contact. And it's amazing what you can find um, just by talking to elders and doing research and reading and connecting with one another because everybody has a little thread of knowledge. And when we bind that together, when we braid that together, we have a really strong bond that can really carry us really far. Um, So I definitely think that's one of the big resources that we have that's right in front of us. Um, And it doesn't have to be that you create a cooperative to do that. Um, But we have like many cooperatives in our lives all the time, people that we share with, people that we work with to um, get things done. And so, um, you know, not to say I wouldn't love to see a bunch of cooperative farms spring up all over the place. I think that would be fantastic and solve a lot of issues right there. Um, So, yeah, using those resources in my work, that can be found, you know, even beyond our cooperative with all the tribes um, in the East Coast, there's a lot of coming together. There's a lot of focus on food sovereignty right now. There's a lot of focus on centering elders and centering youth as solutions to our issues, right? Because you have a historical context and then you have children that remind you that there's tomorrow and there's tomorrow's tomorrow and there's the faces that are still on the ground that are yet to come, right? And so that helps you lengthen your problem-solving timeline beyond just the next quarter or just the next year or just the next five years. So those resources are all around us. Um, And then the final one I'll say I think is um, being thankful and practicing gratitude and practicing receiving, right? And being open to the amazing gifts that the earth gives us every day. I mean, really being aware of that so that you have um, like a renewed purpose and a new relationship with all those gifts that come into your life. Um, And so I try to remember that when I'm, every time I'm out and about and every time I go out to the field and every time I'm touching the corn, I remember all of the amazing life-giving forces that are at play, the other beings that played a role in in everything around us. Um, And being thankful for that helps center me and helps kind of drive me forward. And I think we need to think outside of our little human sphere of of our ability to do things right and um, bring all the other beings with us. I guess the first resource we need to address is is people. and, And we need to do that in a variety of ways. I I think, first of all, we need people to realize that climate change is real. Um, I'm sure the people who live in California and saw all the fires probably realized that that was kind of a real thing. Or the farmers in Iowa that saw their grain bins blown down, or the people along the Missouri or the Mississippi that get flooded out. Um, But people who live, say, in Manhattan may not see the effects of climate change. But... I think that everyone realizes that the, the, the way our food system works, it doesn't take a lot to really disrupt it, whether that's through climate change from a farmer's point of view, or as we saw in the last year with the, with the COVID epidemic, 
um, due to the highly consolidated system. Uh, fact, uh, meat processing facilities had to shut down because their workers were sick. Farmers had no place to market their livestock, so they had to euthanize them. Uh, a lot of vegetable crops couldn't be run through the processing facilities for the same reasons. Um, so I think people are kind of starting to wake up to the idea that that the least little shock in the system uh, doesn't is not going to bode well for everyone. <clears throat> um, so I think that the the fact that people who run CSAs and do direct marketing saw a huge demand uh, for, for their products during the pandemic because people felt safer about eating it. I think that that's a, a, a good thing. I think people realize that the distance we transport food is way too far. And that was again pointed out during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, these, these shocks, uh, if we can explain how we have a better system, um, I think that's a point we need to address. And I think the breaking up of consolidation and establishing more local processing facilities for meat and vegetables, and I guess in effect, getting away from the, the industrial system of uh, you know big CAFOs and monoculture crops, because those two are very dependent on each other. Um, I think from a point of view of an organic farmer and probably a lot of the people that are listening to this that raise livestock um, have had to try and figure out ways to mitigate what the climate's doing to their, uh, the way they raise livestock. They have to figure out more ways of maybe incorporating silvopasture in or at least shelter belts along the field so the cattle have, have shade during the day. Maybe they need to uh, figure out a way to use their uh, uh, loafing barns during the really uh, the hottest days and, and get more air on the animals to, uh, so they can get them through till night when it's cooler. And um, I think the fact that we do transport everything so far and do use so much fossil fuel to do that, be it for transportation or running the big facilities or making in the fuel and chemicals for industrial agriculture, I think we have a system that can get along without those. Um, I think that um, the big thing uh, that, that con uh, conventional agriculture talks about is no-till and how it sequesters more carbon in the soil, which is true, but it doesn't sequester carbon like deep-rooted plants and native prairie and pasture and forests. And so we need to be working more towards that system. Um, the amount of carbon sequestered in, in conventional no-till is all done in the top few inches of the soil. And in order to really sequester it, you need to get it down deep. And that's the kind of, of uh, carbon sequestration that we see in agroecological organic systems. So we need to address the people, we need to address how we farm. And I think we also need to look at what we eat. Um, you know, you can go in a grocery store and maybe that's one of the reasons people don't worry so much about food because short of the last few months during the COVID epidemic, the shelves were full of so many varieties you couldn't choose, but it wasn't really food. It was processed something or other. And I think we need to get back to, like Leo was talking about the, the traditional value of food that, that people have had for generations, uh, nutritious food. Um, so I guess, Addressing, addressing people, uh, what we farm, 
how we farm and uh, how we use our resources. We have to figure out ways of, of farming uh, that aren't so dependent on, on uh, fossil fuels. And um, I think that, that regenerative uh, or agroecological farming uh, is the best way to do that. Um, and I think we've, I guess all organic farmers know that if they're actually farming for the right reason, if they're doing it because they know it's a good way to farm. And certainly the, the indigenous people, uh, wherever they are in the world, like Leah said, uh, this is what we've been doing all along. Don't, don't try and tell us what agroecology is. We know that's what we do. And uh, so I think we need to respect uh, the, the people that, that really have had solutions for thousands of years and try and move our model of agriculture more in line with a system that's always worked. Well, you can only thank us for about 70% of the foods that we have available now. So <laughs> we might know a thing or two about agriculture. <laughs> I love throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I completely agree with you, Jim. So um, I'm going to put Jim on this a spot again. I, you know, you you ran through a lot of things that are you know production methods and how we approach farming and and lots of different categories and and I'm just wondering how do we make that wholesale shift collectively? Like what what can we do collectively? Um, to start really getting some traction on some of these things? Well, I, I think we need to have, um, as, as several uh, presidential candidates said in the primaries, we need to have big, bold plans and we need to follow through on them. And I guess um, in the last year or so, I've seen the Green New Deal as being a big, bold plan because it isn't just about renewable energy, it's really about every part of, of our society. It's about making sure people get paid fairly. It's about making sure people have health care, decent place to live. And I don't think we can change agriculture unless we change society in general. And I think that getting uh, more people onto farms, uh, young people, women, immigrants, uh, breaking up the consolidated system and getting more people on smaller farms that can provide local regional diets, um, I think that's going to have to happen. And we already see initiatives like that in the European Union, for example, their farm to fork uh, idea, which um, is based on local agriculture. And of course, we know that the Europeans have a a very strong connection to their local food, be it, you know, French cheese and wine or whatever. And I think they are a lot more concerned about what they eat perhaps than we are. And I think we need to get back to that place where we're more concerned about what we eat and where it came from. And the only way to do that is to go back to some of those regional local food systems that we had. Um, you know, when I was a kid many years ago, you could go into any small town in Wisconsin and there was a small meat processing plant. Uh, there was cheese factories all over. Uh, we had a pretty fair sized uh, vegetable processing facility just five miles from my place. And uh, the people that worked there were paid well. Uh, they had a job locally. The, produce, the food was produced locally, marketed locally. And um, that all changed because big corporations knew that they could make more money if they consolidated everything and closed down the local facilities. So I think we, 
we maybe need to look back on those local food systems and also in general, some of the uh, farming programs that came out of, of the New Deal that uh, were put in place to stop the Dust Bowl and stop the erosion and the loss of soil and put in place to keep farmers on the land and, and to pay people fairly. So maybe rather than maybe the only way we can get to the future is if we kind of look back to the past and adopt some of those programs we had that actually worked. I think collectively we have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for. We kind of give our power away um, and think that nothing's possible until we have these really huge monumental shifts. Um, but we really can achieve quite a lot um, at the local level, at the state level, um, I think farmers have potential to become a very fierce constituency um, that really can um, cause a lot of political movement as far as how we are, what our policies are in our state. I just learned that Maryland has a huge subsidy for cover crops, and so they're like, they have the highest use of cover crops in the Northeast area. Um, and it's because they wanted to uh, reduce the amount of ammonia going into the Chesapeake Bay. But that's political will and people coming together to make a difference. And I think that we can have that here. We don't necessarily need to wait for national action. It would be helpful. But I think that we can do it here and now um, in the Midwestern states um, by coming together. And I think that people are doing that. But I think there's a lot more that we can do um, and that we're not aware of. Um, and then I would say that outside of the political sphere, there's a lot that we can do to help each other um, by aggregating um, and coming together to figure out, okay, how do we get a facility in our corner of the state that we can all aggregate our product at um, and, and compete in the market and get to a point where we, we are kind of pushing back against that huge consolidation of our food system. Um, and so, and you see those kinds of things are starting to happen, especially in Wisconsin, we're very lucky to have pretty active sustainable agriculture movement. Um, and I think more of that definitely needs to happen. And then I think, um, you know, coming together across the, I, would, I don't want to say demographic uh, farming communities, but um, I think indigenous communities really do have a lot of answers. And I really um, respect Moses for putting an indigenous voice, my voice on this panel, and I hope that there's other indigenous speakers throughout the conference as well, um, because there's a lot of allyship and a lot of uh, learning and exchange that can happen in between farming communities that just um, isn't happening right now at scale. And I think that's something collectively that we could definitely do better. Yes, I'm, I'm so grateful for that thing because I feel like Moses is, is, is kind of almost this mycelial body of like, all right, we have all these hypo threads of ideas and collective impact, and here's a way we can find each other to get one giant mycelial thread running, right? Um, boy, I think, because um, I have a tendency to get like possibility paralysis sometimes. So I, our, our mantra on our farm is always to be like, okay, how can we you know, show up, invest, intervene, and think of that in a way of what small steps can we do toward a big impact, right? Like what, so, so that's, we've, we've embraced that through how we farm, um, you know, and just perennial cover, try not to be discouraged, asking for help, um, you know, it comes up in all kinds of different ways and sources, I think, um, you know, whether it's in trees or your customers or in, you know, <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah, your bigger lender as well too, right? So I think for us, 
um, COVID really gave us a good speed bump in some ways. It's been a creative challenge and disruptor to say the least, but I think it's really asked us, we're asked, you know, to look at our own mortality and the mortality of all, like, you know, again, to see ourselves as part of a broader community of people as well as other living things. And I'm so glad you brought up like gratitude as well, Leah. I, we try to just like honor that and um, how we show up too. And maybe there's this like, we need a Hippocratic oath of farming, right? First, do no harm, like, <laughs> and just, and I have to just, so, and here's another way we kind of try to, oh, well, two other things I wanted to share. So collectively, I am really inspired and heartened by um, some of my role with a farmland access navigation and just seeing people who maybe didn't have a direct connection to land um, or farming, but how they're working together. And there's a real big interest in like shared ownership or not even ownership, right? Shared use and just really creative ways people are finding how to farm, um, you know what? And so I'm really, I think people are starting, we're making that collective shift toward right relationship with land. Um, and, you know, and all, there's a, like all hands on deck and all over the ship, right? <laughs> so, so we can move this. Um, so that's sort of some collective impact we really just need to live differently, you know, I think not just in farming, but just in our, how we, our whole selves. So, yeah, we're always rewarded with more work, right? As farmers, geez, no problem. <laughs> well, I just wanted to add too that, you know, there are so many social movements that have started just in the last couple of years, you know, the Black Lives Matter and the and, uh, global climate youth movement. Um, and, we're really all wanting the same thing, but we don't maybe know as much about what that group wants, what that group needs uh, as we should. And I think, you know, maybe that goes to that big, bold movement that we need to communicate with other groups that are in effect doing the same thing we are. They're, they're trying to get to a more just society, but they're just looking at the part that they understand and they know, and that's okay. But, um, we all need to uh, to realize that we're doing, trying to do the same thing. Uh, you know, the Sunrise Movement, uh, a lot of really, really amazing young people uh, that, that focus a lot on energy. And that's great, but they often don't know the story of, of what, farming is, what farming is like and that we have some solutions that fit precisely with what they want to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the anti-racist movement, same thing. Uh, we can't have a just society unless it's just for everyone, uh, be it uh, racially just or economically just or um, just for the way people farm. So I think that, that that's something we really need to, 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 to work for, uh, whether it's in Wisconsin or nationally or globally, to um, make alliances with these other groups that are working for the same ends that we are. Can I just add to, like, I'm just like the flower farmer in me is like, I feel like there's a real uh, power in beauty and, and, you know, planting life's peak, peak expressions in flowers in some ways. It helps to me. I feel like it's one of those things that we all, when we experience something beautiful, we all sort of know it exists, but we maybe have different feelings of that in our body. And, and I just kind of feel like it, it just helps us think about enough. Like as humans, how are we going to contend with our desire or just be okay with enough as is. So I also feel like that, you know, making a collective aesthetic base and I think growing food is 
is gorgeous, <laughs> right? And just sort of what are we willing to accept, uh, like at, um, in terms of the aesthetic on the land too. So I don't know. I, I feel like that also has a role, and it's something that's really accessible to a lot of people. It's my experience. So. Yeah, I think I'm going to also take away from this conversation Leah's uh, quote of farmers being a fierce constituency. I love that as a kind of collective vision. So just to kind of close us out, uh, no pressure here, but but how are you all generally feeling about our ability as folks involved in agriculture to make an impact on climate? And I think, I don't know, I think we might be starting with Aaron. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. Um... I would say on my best days, I'm hopeful and, and hopeful in the form of, you know, just showing up and in support of life's continuity. You know, we think about there's always these floating electrons. There's always seems to be one electron left over that's going to keep going and finding something to attract to. So I, to me, it looks like the form of trees. Okay, I won't have to go particle physics, but I, I get kind of hopeful on my best days. On other days, I'm really sad. I don't know. Um, I think if we were like looked at this one path before us of like some people or we're just addicted to hell bent on colonialism on the earth and not just earth, but also in space, right? People are trying to colonize Mars now. <laughs> but, so do we have a land ethic that is up for the 21st century challenge and that of climate change being of that, you know, um, I think we, we have, we have the resources and it just, I don't know. So, that's a great question. I just, yeah, maybe just keep one hand in the dirt and plant something wherever you're at or and commit to taking care of it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of a roller coaster of emotions between how do, how do I feel this day given this new set of facts that I just learned. Um, but I think overall, what I really feel is just a responsibility. So I'm inheriting a line of seeds that were carried on for so long. So many ancestors thousands of years back have been growing these seeds. They brought them with them when being relocated to Wisconsin. And that was a really hard winter when they got here to Wisconsin. And I'm sure that they were sitting there thinking, I could just eat these seeds. Um, but instead, they saved them and they planted them that next year. And because of that choice, we have that same corn here in Wisconsin. And so I have that responsibility now to take care of that corn and pass it on to the next generation. And I think that we all need to remember that we all carry that responsibility. Whether or not you are Haudenosaunee and that's written into your principles of how you walk on the earth or not, you're a human and you have that responsibility to carry the water and carry the seeds for the next generation because they're depending on you, their hands are outstretched waiting to receive that from you. So I feel very much, you know, carrying a responsibility is my primary emotion around it. Well, I think that roller coaster reference is, is probably a good one because some days you feel pretty hopeful and then some days you don't. Um, but I guess overall, um, I do feel hopeful. I mean, we're not gonna kill the earth. Um, we'll kill ourselves first and, you know, the earth is always gonna be there um, for a long time anyway. Um, but I, I feel hopeful, you know, I remember back during the sixties when, uh, during Vietnam, uh, people my age were protesting the war and, um, then that the war ended and things kind of died down and everybody's saying, well, you know, what about the young people? Why aren't they doing anything? 
But now we see that that they are again. And I feel so hopeful because young people are determined to make a difference. And I think it's been a while since that happened. And uh, I think that's what's going to pull us through. Um, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a position, I'm retired. Um, I don't have to worry if I'm going to be able to pay the rent or, you know, get my kids to school or be able to buy food. Uh, and I think that it's important that the people that are in that position do what they can to help the young people to make a difference, to make that change. Um, but I, I, I see so many young people that want to farm and not a lot. They don't want to farm a thousand acres. They want an acre or two because they want to grow food. And I think it's been a long time since maybe everyone felt that way. Um, you know, that's always been part of indigenous culture and, and, and part of, part of uh, um, small farmers all over the world. But, you know, we've gotten away from that. But, but the young people, the, the, the migrants who came to this country to work on farms, they want their own land. And I think that um, that really gives me hope. And I, I hope there's a way we can all figure something out through land trusts or cooperatives to give people a chance to have their own land and to farm because uh, that's the kind of food that is really gonna make a difference, not just for the environment, but for, for everyone. Uh, you know, you're only, you are what you eat. And uh, I think uh, your environment is very dependent on the way you grow it. So the fact that there's so many people wanna get back into farming uh, and the fact that uh, there are politicians who want to make that happen, I think that that really gives me hope. Thank you all so much um, for your thoughts and the way that uh, you walk on the earth and the farming that you do. Um, and I would just like to kind of in closing, have a couple of comments to share and many of them um, echo what, what we just heard and what we talked about together. But as we open this conference, the Biden-Harris administration has identified and begun to demonstrate that addressing climate change within agriculture is a priority. The fighting climate change is no longer about data. We all agree it's happening, but about money and power. And those with the power seem willing to put us all in peril. As a species, we are also uh, able to recognize our own ability to determine our distinction or survival. We can plan. We can change, we can find technological solutions to problems we have made, but is that the path forward? Are we really willing to live beyond our means in terms of earth's resources and the plants and animals we share symbiotic relationships with for clean air, water, and fertile soil? I fear that the idea that we can somehow outsmart our way out of careening toward an overheated planet is actually the next bigger threat on the horizon. According to the environmentalist and author Bill McKibben, restraint is our superpower. We are the only creature on earth that can decide not to do something we are capable of. And from Paul Hawken, we have the capacity to create a remarkably different economy, one that can restore ecosystems and protect the environment. I would also add that we have the capacity for meaningful connectedness and for compassion, love and empathy as our human strengths. As we look toward addressing climate change as farmers and eaters, we have to critically evaluate proposed solutions, not only based on their scientific merits, but how they impact equity and justice in communities, urban, suburban, and rural, on farms, big and small. As a close to this session, we have been given permission from Climate Reality Project 
to share with you a poem from poet laureate Amanda Gorman entitled Earthrise. I look forward to learning and being in conversation with you all this week as a community that cares deeply about farming, food, and justice. On Christmas Eve, 1968, astronaut Bill Anders snapped a photo of the Earth as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. Those three guys were surprised to see from their eyes a planet looked like an Earthrise, a blue orb hovering over the moon's gray horizon with deep oceans and silver skies. It was our world's first glance at itself, our first chance to see a shared reality, a declared stance, and a commonality, a glimpse into our planet's mirror. And as threats drew nearer, our own urgency became clearer as we realized that we hold nothing dearer than this floating body we all call home. We've known that we're caught in the throes of climactic changes some say will just go away while some simply pray to survive another day. For it is the obscure, the oppressed, the poor who when the disaster is declared done still suffer more than anyone. Climate change is the single greatest challenge of our time. Of this you're certainly aware, it's saddening, but I cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the facts straight that gets us to act and not to wait. So I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you, to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities, we all care to protect this world, this riddled blue marvel, this little true marvel to master the verve and the nerve to see how we can serve our planets. You don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve, to protect, to preserve that one and only home that is ours to use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve. We are demonstrating, creating, advocating. We heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, pale blue dots we will fail you not just as we chose to go to the moon we know it's never too soon to choose hope we choose to do more than cope with climate change we choose to end it we refuse to lose we do this and more not because it's very easy or nice but because it is necessary because with every dawn we carry the weight of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star and as heavy as the weight sounded it doesn't hold us down but it keeps us grounded steady ready because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an earth rise to see it close your eyes visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us change makers are in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view, we witness its round green and brilliant blue which inspires us to ask deeply, wholly, what can we do?
open your eyes, know the future of this wise planet is white in sight. Right, and all of us trust this earth uprising. All of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before. For it is a hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for. Thanks to Leah Zizi, Jim Goodman, Aaron Schneider and our executive director, Lori Stern. We've got a lot of field days coming up, so be sure to check out that link in the show notes. And we've also been putting together videos from those field days, so visit our YouTube page to check that out. And thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Leave us a voice memo of a memorable farm smell, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a farmer friend about the show. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. One of our programs for beginning farmers is an event called New Farmer U. It will be held on October 29th and 30th, 2021 in Willow River, Minnesota, along with our partners Renewing the Countryside. It is a two-day event with a focus on farm financial and business management, geared toward farmers with three to six years of farming experience, or farmers with less experience who are ready to plan for the future of their farms. Check out mosesorganic.org slash newfarmeru for more information. If you have any questions about today's episode or have ideas for future episodes, please contact me at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>